Join Jay Unger and Molly Mason of the Ashokan Center for a special performance at The Quiet Room, live on Radio Catskill, Sunday evening at 7. Part of Sunday Stage, live Sunday evening at 7, only on Radio Catskill. Support for WJFF comes from Two Queens, offering coffee, tea, and bees. Located in Pete's Plaza, Narrowsburg, New York. TwoQueensCoffee.com. And from listener donations at WJFFRadio.org. Support for Radio Catskill comes from the Calicoon Theater, an updated vintage movie theater with new releases, film festivals, nostalgic screenings, live music events, and more. Information and schedule at thecalicoontheater.com. Good morning. You've just tuned into Catskill Character on WJFF Radio Catskill. I'm your host, Donna Fellenberg, and my guest today is conceptual artist Mike Alsterhout. Catskill Character is a show about people who live, work, or come back often to visit the Catskills. All of these people have in common a deep and abiding love for the Catskills, and many of them find interesting ways to contribute to the character of the Catskills. My guest, Mike Alsterhout, is no exception. Mike was born in Montgomery, New York in the early 50s and went to Valley Central High School, but his ancestors have been in New York since 1653. He left in 1970 to go to college and returned to the area to live and work at his craft at the time as a printmaker in Woodstock, New York, where he ran a printmaking business till 1975. Although he hadn't been a serious student, when he moved out to California in the mid-70s, he developed an interest in religion, and after graduate school at the San Francisco Art Institute, he went to seminary school in Berkeley. It was then that themes of religion began to pop up in his work. Many of you may be familiar with the Church of the Little Green Man, located in Glen Wild, New York, founded by Mike, and I'm going to ask him to tell you all about it. Let me welcome you, Mike, to Catskill Character. I'm so glad you're here. Oh, it's my pleasure. You know, before we get to the Church of the Little Green Man, I'd love if you could talk for a moment about Montgomery, about how, what it was like when you were growing up and what it's like today. Montgomery's a beautiful little town. I grew up in the 50s and 60s there, left in 1970. And, you know, small town... Lions Club, Chamber of Commerce, that type of thing, uh, Main Street. It's it's still a sweet little spot. Luckily, uh, in the 60s and 70s, the old buildings weren't torn down and there was a resurgence. So now there's little antique shops and good restaurants. Were there no restaurants when you were there? Oh, probably not. Growing up? Plenty of bars. <laughs> okay, so you were living in Montgomery in 1969, when the Woodstock Music Festival happened, and you were there. I was, yeah. And why don't you tell us how you got there? Well, we have a, a country place at Wolf Lake, and in the summers we would we would come up there. And my parents were just pretty clueless about what was going on uh, in that time period, uh, 68, 69 time period, musically and everything, but we weren't. Uh, I was 16 years old, and myself and my 14-year-old brother, Bird, and I, we went and bought tickets, and it was a big deal. Uh, all of us, all our friends and everything, we were going to go. So my parents didn't didn't fight it. I think they realized that they would lose that fight. Uh, so they drove us in the station wagon with my other 
two younger younger siblings and got as far as the racetrack and the traffic backed up and off we went. Yeah, the festival actually started when you got out of the car. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but it did have a big effect on you. Yes, you know, the the world basically came to our little corner here in the in the Catskills at that time. And, you know, to have all these amazing acts, Jimi Hendrix and Crosby, Stills, Nash and & Young and, and everybody coming here. And then all the hippies from from New York City to, you know, to California, the whole the whole country kind of showed up here. So we we wouldn't have missed it. But we the reality, the reality of the weather and the rain and the mess, we stayed Friday night and we left. We left the next morning. We left Saturday morning, hitchhiked back to Wolf Lake. And then turned on the news and realized how big of a deal it was, and we mm. went back. Oh, <laughs> so wow! So we missed we missed actually the best night. You know, we we still kick ourselves for that. We missed Saturday night, the one time it didn't rain, and the great acts. But we went back Sunday, and of course it rained again, and it was a big oh. mess. You know, but yeah, we we were there. Yeah. When I talked to you before, you said that you realized that you had to make your own scene. Well, I think at, at that point, being a 16-year-old kid, I thought this, this is the great beginning of, a, of an amazing adventure. Uh, uh, the, you know, the, the hippies, the, the uh, subculture, the underground was kind of at its zenith. And very soon thereafter, I realized it was the end of something and not the beginning of something. Right before uh, Woodstock, uh, you know, Charlie Manson, the, the Tate LaBianca murders had happened. Uh, it was pretty much the end of the scene in, in the summer of 69. And as I matured as an artist, I realized, okay, the, you know, I'm, I'm subversive. I'm part of the underground, and I'm going to try to create my own underground. And so you've been doing that. You've been making your own scene from San Francisco to the East Village. Why don't you speak for a moment about what conceptual art is? Well, when I moved to, to San Francisco in 1975, I was pretty clueless about conceptual art or performance art. Uh, I ended up at the San Francisco Art Institute and with artists in that area that I had no clue what they were doing – Artists like David Ireland, uh, Tom Marioni, Linda Montano, Chris Burden, they were all either visiting or teaching or part of that community. And conceptualism is kind of idea-based art. You come up with a, a, an idea and you follow that and you follow it through. There's no restrictions on medium, so you can paint, you can sculpt, you can do music, you can do performance, you can do whatever you want to do under that rubric. And uh, it, it's been a great way of of having an art career, and uh, I have a very short attention span, so I never get <laughs> bored. So what are some of the projects that you've done over the years? I've done, I call it social sculpture or contextualism at this point, you know, because I've worked with it, say, for 40 years now, and, you know, conceptualism doesn't even kind of fit for what I do anymore. I'm very concerned with context. Uh, I don't show that much within the museum world, the institutional art world, or the marketplace. So I create my own context. So I've gone to seminary as as an artist. Uh, I've I've run galleries. I've had rock bands as an artist. Always kind of as art. So I see. so as social sculpture or as art. That's 
that's what I do, you know, and one project always seems to lead to the next. So you always have to support yourself. You still yep. have to bre- uh, eat and yep. have a roof over your head. But whatever it is that you do to support yourself, you do it as an artist. Uh, I work as little as possible <laughs> in order to to, ha- to be an artist. So mm-hmm. over the years, I've, I've been ma- mainly a, a high-end carpenter. So that, ah. that gave me the freedom to structure my time however I want it. You know, periodically, of course, not as much as I want it. But, you know, that paid the bills. You did tell me that... The Church of the Little Green Man, which I want you to define for me, if you can, mm. um, started in the East Village. Right. What does that mean, the Church of the Little Green Man? Well, we in the East Village in the in the 80s, I, I started a small gallery in San Francisco called Mo David. And uh, Mo is, uh, is my first and last initial, and, and David is my middle name. So, so I use that as, as kind of a pseudonym. Started an art gallery, but once again, as a, as sculpture, as an art project, uh, being you know being a conceptualist at the time, and that's what brought me to the East Village. And so when when the gallery failed, I decided, all right, I'm going to um, get into music. I'd never played music. I'd never. Um, uh, played an instrument or sang or anything, but I'd written. I'd written poems and songs. So I found some musicians and I got together with them and we started a band called Purple Jesus. And almost simultaneously, we started a church uh, with, the, with the band being kind of the core of the church. And uh, it, just, it just came together, you know, kind of, you know, just, just spontaneity of the time period allowed uh, all of us to go, okay, let's start a church. Mm-hmm. And my concern, I had, I had worked with religion and religious imagery early in my career, and my concern was I didn't want to start a, a parody. I wanted to, to do a project that was an actual church. So we, okay, we're going to start a church. We, we were going to call it the Church of the Green Man because we were watching this goofy movie called Wicker Man. And in the movie, there was a bar called the Green Man Bar. I said, let's name a church after the bar. And somebody said, well, how about Little Green Man? Even better. I said, well, what are we going to charge? Let's charge a dollar. Somebody else said, let's burn a dollar. Perfect. So that was, that was the formation of the church. To this day, we burn dollar bills. So in order to come to the church, you burn a dollar bill to come in. And that kind of sets the tone. Mm-hmm. So we appropriate uh, the structure of a church. We have programs. We sing hymns, but all with a very irreverent approach. There's no. It's a church without religion. There's no dogma. There's no doctrine. You don't have to believe anything. Uh, we welcome everyone: Muslims, Jews, Christians, non-Christians, atheists, whatever. Everyone's welcome. It's a happening. It's a happening to a degree. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, and moving up here to the Catskills, it's it's become a real fun scene. We do three or four a year. We don't do it every week. Uh, we do it when the spirit moves us. Mm-hmm. I want to be on that mailing list. There's no mailing list. Oh, there's no. Of course, keep your ear to the, of to course. the ground. <laughs> <laughs> and you you also own a shul. I do. I bought a shul five or six years ago. Which is a synagogue. A synagogue uh, right down the street from the church. Uh, there's two uh, buildings on the National Registry in Glenwild, and I own both of them. Uh, so the, uh, the, the church is in the old uh, Methodist Episcopal Church, 
uh, on Old Glen Wild Road, and the shul is the congregation Anshi, Anshi or Anshai, I don't exactly know how to how pronounce it, uh, in Glen Wild. So both of those buildings serve as kind of, uh, um, you know, art performance uh, studio space. They have multiple purposes. Right, so you live and work. In the church, I live and work next. Well, I I have a house next to the church, oh. so I don't exactly live in the church. Oh, okay. We only do uh, the services in the church, and then the shul is uh, more multifaceted. So we do sometimes installations in the shul. It's called the old shul for social sculpture, and, uh, and but mainly I use it as my uh, studio to do mm -hmm. paintings and sculptural work. And did you build the house that you live in? Uh, I renovated all of it. It was all just kind of a, a mess when I got it. So I renovated both the, the, uh, the house and the church. Mm -hmm. And oh. the house was the stables for the church. The church was oh. built in 1867. It goes way back. You know, I think this is a good time for us to take a break. And then we'll come back and have more with my guest, Mike Osterhout. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be right back. This happened underground at 72nd Street and Central Park West, and I swear, I swear, this is a true story. It's called Waiting for the B Train. On the next Folk Plus, songs about New York City. There was a woman at the end of the platform Sunday at 4, following Wagon Load of Monkeys. There's a puppy on the rails. I think it has been hurt. New York City on the next Folk Plus. And I'll watch for the train to fuel, jump down, pick him up, and hand him to me. She said if we take him to the vet, if we on this week's On the Media, transgender people, politics, and depictions, and how it's easy to assume something's new and rare when it's neither. For most of the 20th century, scientists and doctors believed that everyone was just a mix of male and female. Moving beyond binaries on this week's On the Media from WNYC. Saturday afternoon at 4 on Radio Catskill. Welcome back to Catskill Character. I'm Donna Fellenberg, and I'm speaking with my guest, Mike Osterhout. Yes, <laughs> about his life as a conceptual artist. Mike was born and raised in Montgomery, New York, and after spending time in the West Coast and time in the city, he returned to live and work in the Catskills. In the first half of the show, Mike told us about what conceptual art is and about the creation of his longest ongoing art piece, The Church of the Little Green Man. In the second half of the show, Mike talks about his current project that has become almost an obsession with him. Let's get back to the show and find out what that is. Mike, people may be a little surprised to find out what your latest project is. Can you talk about how it began? Because I think that's a great story. Well, when I, uh, when I found the church, uh, there was... Um, well, first it, of all, let's set the scene. Sure. You were driving around in the country. Driving around in the Catskills. Uh, you know, we've, I've come to this area all my life. Uh, but for some reason, I had never been down Old Glen Wild Road. So rainy day and my girlfriend and I are driving down Old Glen Wild Road. And there's an amazing farm that now Butch Resnick has right across the street. So we're looking at that. And she said, well, look to the right. 
and there's this old dilapidated just beautiful beautiful old church and so for some reason the door was open we went inside it was leaking and uh just filled with lawnmowers and bicycles and what have you and i looked down and there's a a certificate either of baptism or marriage with the name osterhout on it oh. so it just sent chills kind of up our spine and uh and i put a note on the door and i went uh if you ever want to sell this property please contact me i had didn't have a penny to my name but i i somehow knew that this property was calling to me and I, 10 I, years later the guy called literally me. calling to you <laughs> yeah so you know it it all worked out so you ended up with the church, and now you also own the shul down the road that you purchased in 2013. Mm -hmm. But then, and here it is, your new project, you got into the study, this is about two years ago, of your ancestry. What are some of the most interesting stories you've learned about your ancestors? Well, I, I got into it I, just kind of out of the blue. Uh, I've always written, but mainly short things. Um, poems, songs, columns, things like that, and, uh, and never really had any interest in, in my family other than my, my kind of nuclear family, my, you know, my mother and father and siblings, and we have a very tight family. And, but I was never really one of those like to learn about uh, your ancestry. It just never interests me. But a, uh, a man wrote a book on my mother's uh, ancestor, Jennings, uh, Richard Jennings' murder, and Richard Jennings' murder uh, took place in uh, 1818 uh, in uh, Sugarloaf, which is over near Goshen, and it was uh, reportedly the first murder for hire, murder conspiracy ever prosecuted in New York State. So I started the book by delving into that and wrote the second half of the book first and realized how kind of ignorant and clueless I was to to history, to New York State history or, or you know, American history. Uh, whatever I'd learned in school was probably worthless, and I'd forgotten it by now anyhow. And so I, I kind of went into this deep dive into my family history, but also, uh, you know, history with, with a capital H and trying to figure out, you know, the backstory on right. how, could, how could this murder conspiracy happen over 50 acres of land in Goshen. That's what they were fighting over. Yeah, they were fighting over the like kind of a family fight over 50, 50 acres of property, and that brought in all these characters. And it's a, it's a it's a very interesting story, and the, the characters are great. Two people hung for it, and and that got me the Jennings side, got me into the Osterhout side. So the Osterhout side goes back to sixteen fifty in Kingston. That's mm. when the you that know, is the, a long time. Long time. By the way, people have been killed for less than 50 acres. Oh, of course. People have been killed for a loaf of bread of or whatever. Of course. But to me, finding out that your ancestors owned slaves was a huge thing. Because when, like, as you mentioned, in school, we never were taught that. Right. We were northerners, and northerners right. didn't own slaves. Well, sla well, we weren't taught it, but it was, it's very true. And, and it wasn't just the rich northerners. The, the, the working class whites owned, owned plenty of slaves. There's loads of records of it. So, yeah, I, could, I mean, I found records saying what Osterhout owned, how many slaves, and what their names were and uh, going all the way back to the 1600s. 
And there's another story that you told me about, about a man who was actually a black man named Osterhout. Mm-hmm. That part of the research, as I, as I was uh, researching Kingston and, you know, we're, we're, what, 50 miles, 60 miles from Kingston and, and the family is still here. So there's, there's so much uh, information in, in, those, in those time periods. And I stumbled across uh, a, colored, a colored person's convention, 1840, in Albany. Uh, and reference to a Charles Osterhout. So, so that's what it was called, the Colored Persons that's Convention? That's what the, the convention was called, and it was run by an abolitionist, black abolitionist by the name of Austin Stewart. And, and so Charles Osterhout was a delegate, a black delegate from Hudson. And so that got me... Uh, that piqued your interest. Well, it completely piqued my interest to the degree that uh, I'd never ever come across, uh, you know, uh, an African-American with, with the name of Osterhout. Osterhout isn't that common of a name. It's a Dutch name. And so I started Googling Negro Osterhouse, Black Osterhouse, African-American Osterhouse. And through that Google process, I found a photograph by James Vanderzee, a very famous Harlem Renaissance photographer of uh, early 20th century. And the photograph was of his grandparents, and his grandparents were David, Estelle, and Maddie Osterhout. Hmm. And that photograph it was in Roland Bart's book, uh, Camera Lucida. So Bart starts to talk about this photograph, and so I started digging, digging, and and it, it, it the one of the best parts of the whole research was I ended up at Donna Vanderzee's door. Donna Munson Vanderzee is James Vanderzee's widow. Now, James Vanderzee died in 83, so I I assumed his widow would either be dead mm. or or very very old. Well, she was very young when she married James. So Donna Vanderzee is about my age. Oh. And so we've become friends. I've purchased the photograph from her. And it's opened up, you know, this, this whole new world to me of realizing in, in one way it's completely shameful because more than likely this Osterhout name was attached through slavery. I don't exactly know how, how the, the black branch of the family got Got the Osterhout name. I'm still researching it. But, but what, what are you thinking? Are you thinking that a slave had relations with one of your ancestors? Or, and well, either I, I would doubt through marriage. No, no. Because, like I say, the first the first instance that I found of an Osterhout was 1840. Very early, you know, very early for uh, there to be any kind of official sanction of you know, a white man and a black woman. Mm. Uh, so I'm assuming, and this is an assumption, that through manumission, which is the freeing of a slave, they took the Osterhout name. Mm -hmm. Because slaves did not get, uh, you know, uh, last names. So when you look at slave records, they're named things like floor, you know, like literally the spelling floor, mm. F-L-O-O-R, or nail. You know, they're named after objects. Wow, uh, I never so, knew that. So there's, you know, it would be very unusual for even a freed slave to have a black name. Uh, I mean, to have a, a last name. So, so 
I'm still still digging, still looking at it. And, and besides Googling, how do you do this research? Uh, genealogical societies. Mm-hmm. There's loads of little historical societies uh, from Milford to Accord to um, uh, up in Kingston. Uh, because the family stayed in this area, Fonda, New York, basically we started in Kingston. Certain branches went up into the Mohawk Valley. There was a lot of Indian interaction, scalpings and kidnappings. And the the deeper I got into it, the more things I found. Mm. Uh, with with the Osterhout name, there was very famous Jacob Osterhout kidnapping. There's a book called Tom Quick Indian Slayer. Now, Tom Quick is also a cousin of the Osterhouts. And then within that book, this guy Quinlan from Monticello wrote it. And, uh, you know, it's all gunpowder and, and tomahawk history. It's 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 you know, basic bullshit, you know, but at the same time, the truth is there. So th- through the research, you, you you start to realize, like, you know, underneath it all, there's some truth. What kind of an impact has this had on you? It's been... Um, is it like it, life-altering? Or? It's not been life-altering. It's been, it's a big project. The, the book itself is called Fancestor. So I started it like like a conceptual artist would with a su- simple rule that if I could find an Osterhout, that was interesting through Google searches and through research, I would follow that through the, this time period from 1653 to wherever this book is going to end. So, so there turned out to be, you know, Osterhouse and Jennings, uh, and, you know, there was way too many. So that's what I'm dealing with now. I'm trying mm-hmm. to edit the thing, you know. Yeah. See where it leads me. A lot, do you do a lot of rewrites? Yes, loads of rewrites. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at this point, that's what it's all about. It's just trying to edit it. Well, I'm sure you're going to follow this through to the end. And I do know that when you're sitting there at the keyboard, this can be a very lonely kind of experience. And I was wondering if you ever feel like you're visited by any of your ancestors. Does it ever feel like the soul of your ancestors is right there with you? I don't know about the soul, but you do get the feeling as you're going through uh, this writing. Sometimes I'll be I'll be working on a chronology of, say, March of, of 1777, and the weather will be, and I'll look at, you know, it, it literally I'll be on the same day, like say March 6, 1777, it will be March 6, 2017, mm-hmm. you know, that I was working on the same thing, same area, uh, you know, so, so there's that history that it, it becomes visceral, you know, you realize that, that, so much has changed and nothing has changed. You know, we're still dealing with racism. We're still dealing with, you know, the genocide of the Indians. We're still dealing with many of these issues that we were dealing with in 1650. That is fascinating, Mike. And I'm so happy that you came in today. And I really want to thank you. Oh, well, thank you. It was my pleasure. listening to Catskill Character with today's guest conceptual artist and ancestry detective Mike Osterhout. Catskill Character is on every Saturday morning at 1130 on WJFF Radio Catskill right after Farming Country. I'm Donna Fellenberg. Thanks so much for tuning in today and I hope you'll join me again next week for more Catskill Character right here on WJFF.
Support for Radio Catskill comes from the Calicoon Theater, an updated vintage movie theater with new releases, film festivals, nostalgic screenings, live music events, and more. Information and schedule at thecalicoontheater.com. Support for WJFF comes from Two Queens, offering coffee, tea, and bees. Located in Pete's Plaza, Narrowsburg, New York. TwoQueensCoffee.com. And from listener donations at WJFFRadio.org. Hey, it's Francis Lamb, host of The Splendid Table. This week, we're celebrating Mother's Day. We have the mother-son duo of Jewel Robinson and Kwame Onwachi talking about how she inspired him to become a lauded chef. We take Mother's Day cooking questions with Melissa Clark, and we hear about the Korean birthday soup tradition of Myokuk. It's coming up on The Splendid Table. Sunday at noon on Radio Catskill. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. When you listen to NPR, you tap into a network of local reporters working in communities across the country. The expertise of our national correspondents and the international reach of our journalists reporting around the world. NPR is everywhere you are and wherever the stories are for 50 years and counting. Your NPR station for the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania. You're listening to Radio Catskill. Support comes from the Homestead School, Montessori Education, preschool through early college with campuses in Glens Bay and Hurleyville, building the intelligence, creativity, connection, and skills for an ecological future since 1978. Homesteadschool.com. From the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg, New York. Riverreporter.com. And from listener donations at wjffradio.org. Support for Radio Catskill comes from the Neversink General Store, featuring an award-winning chef, smoked barbecue year-round, local products and catering, now offering takeout, neversinkgeneralstore.com.